You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. What do we think about when we think about Christmas? Lots of things probably come to mind, don't they? They've been on our minds now for several weeks, and we've got another week with Christmas, and maybe we can work in some church, and we'll sing some Christmas carols, and we've already decorated our trees. If you haven't decorated your tree by now, you might as well forget that. We'll try to work in some focus on the nativity, and maybe even do an advent calendar or something like that, and, and, and we'll have these kinds of things on our minds in this season, in these weeks. But there's another theme that I fear rarely comes to mind in the weeks leading up to Christmas and maybe the period afterwards. And it's surprising to me because when we come to the Scriptures, this particular theme really sums up what Christmas is all about. And there are numerous texts in the Bible that that tell us why Jesus came and what He came to do. And, And a lot of times we read the nativity texts, Matthew 1, Luke 2, in isolation from the other texts that tell us the purpose for the coming of Jesus. The reason for His birth. And so we can talk a lot about the nativity and we can kind of do the baby Jesus thing, but we don't always draw the line from baby Jesus to The one who has first place in all things. The one through whom and for whom all things were made, including us. And so there's this other theme that that resounds all through the Scriptures. Aimed at the purpose for His coming, the redemption that He brings, and the purpose of that redemption, which is far more than the forgiveness of sins. And so one of the things we do a lot in December is we'll take those nativity texts and we'll lay them alongside a text that maybe can open up our eyes to see things a little more clearly. And maybe can open up our hearts to receive Jesus more deeply and offer ourselves to Him more thoroughly. So we've got these two texts, Matthew chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. And both of them draw our attention to who Jesus is and what He does who He is, and what He does. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And as Emmanuel, God with us, He does certain things. And when we put these two texts side by side, there's this central reality that is brought into focus. right? Because Colossians, Jesus sounds like a man on a mission, doesn't He? I mean, He's got stuff to do. He's done the creation thing. His creation has been wrecked by sin, and now He's recreating it. He's making it anew. He's like this man on a mission. But all that starts in Bethlehem, doesn't it? All that starts in the manger. And so if we hold these texts side by side, Matthew on the one hand, Paul on the other, we're in a position to see that the meaning of Christmas is really the mission of God. At the heart of this thing is God's mission to creatures made in His image. His mission to us. His mission to be at work in our lives. And all that comes to its focus in Jesus. Matthew introduces the point by telling us about Joseph. In Luke, we kind of get 
Mary's perspective on the whole thing and her experience with the angel. In Matthew, we get Joseph's experience and perspective and frustrations and his experience with an angelic messenger as well. Joseph discovers that his wife, is, or his wife-to-be, is pregnant. And I don't have to tell you that in first century Judea, that is a perilous place for a young woman to be, and really for Joseph to be. And he's got a choice. He can do the public disgrace thing, or he can just sort of privately call it quits, wrap this up, tie on a bow on it, and go on with his life. A lot of people would do the public disgrace thing, wouldn't they? But Joseph, in his kindness, and you get a sense of his character here, we're told he's just going to dismiss her quietly. What he doesn't know yet is that God is at work in very unexpected ways. God is at work, but with Joseph's plan to dismiss Mary, that work is jeopardized, isn't it? The the holy family is jeopardized in this moment. And so God does what He does, and He sends a messenger, an angelic messenger. And the message for Joseph is this, Matthew tells us, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus. And here's the reason. He will save His people from their sins. Matthew tells us that this took place to fulfill what had been predicted by the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if we're reading this, and if we're reading it carefully, there's two things that jump out, right? There's the who he is, and there's the what he's going to do piece. Who is He? He's God with us. His birth is the work of the Spirit of God. His conception is the work of the Spirit of God. God is uniquely present in this one. And what is He going to do? He's on a mission. A rescue mission. To save His people from their sin. In Theology books, they call this the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Person, who is he? Work, what has he done? Who is he? God with us. What has he done? He rescues us and redeems us. Now Matthew, in the narrative, doesn't have a lot of space to fill in the detail there, does he? Like, but, he but he offers us, on the first page of the New Testament, Right, this is Matthew chapter 1, he offers us the questions. Like, Here are the questions you need to ask when you're reading your Bible on Tuesday morning, or when you're praying and you're communing with Jesus individually, or when you gather with the church, these are crucial questions that the church should be asking. Who is he? What does he do? Who is he? What does he do? And I would encourage you, like when you're singing the hymns of the faith and the Christmas carols and, and other songs that we sing together, when you're praying, Allow your thoughts and prayers and practices to, to move in those directions. Scripture tells us these are the questions. Who is he? What does he do? And if my prayers are structured in that way, I can be confident that my prayers are going to be structured in a way that God has revealed 
bring our focus into His saving purposes. If the Gospels don't fill in huge kind of detail about what it means for Jesus to be God with us, and what it means for Him to save His people from His sins, they do offer us information on that. But the rest of the New Testament spends a lot of time reflecting on that as well. And, and, and it, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, the church discovers more thoroughly what this means and what it looks like. And, and Colossians chapter 1 is one of those majestic places in the New Testament. If you're going to memorize a text of Scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is a great place to start. Because it takes this baby, like Mary's baby, laid in a manger, like a feeding trough, fills in the picture about what it means for Him to be God with us. What does it mean for Him to be God with us? Paul says it means He's the image of the invisible God. It means that the Creator, the One who speaks and brings everything into existence, the One who speaks and things that were not there are all of a sudden there. That Creator shows up in this Jesus. And that's counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, the world has a lot of gods to offer. The religion, different religions of the world have a lot of gods to offer. Very rarely do they show up in spaces of poverty. In fact, I'm having difficulty thinking of one. <laughs> if any of you are world religion scholars after the service and I'm just missing one, come talk to me and like let me know which... One it is. But typically, in the ancient world, the religions that were competing for space with early Christianity, their gods didn't show up in feeding troughs. That humiliation is not a part of the story. Typically, when we create gods in our own image, humiliation, humbleness lowliness is not really part of the recipe. But we're told the Supreme One, the infinitely powerful One, the Creator who makes good things, who, who creates all things and says this is good, even very good, when He wants to show up to rescue a creation gone off the rails, He shows up in a helpless baby in a manger. And we're invited to ask the who is he question again, aren't we? Paul says, you may miss this, so let me be super clear. God with us means that in Him, all the fullness of God dwells in a body. An infant body. Like if He were here, we'd take Him to the nursery. And that's stunning to me. And it's worth all of us just pausing and probably getting on our faces for a few hours and silently humbling ourselves before Him in the mystery and beauty and stunning glory of a God who is supreme in every way who says, I love you so much and I care so deeply about your well-being that I will descend from a place of cosmic supremacy and take up residence in an infant body in a manger so that I can know what it's like to be you.
Because if he doesn't do that, he has no sympathy for Because we know what it feels like to get humiliated. To have to experience lowliness and frailty and weakness. Our bodies break. We get sick. We get discouraged. We're finite. We are feeble. And somehow... In the incarnation, God taking the fullness of God dwelling bodily, the cosmic supreme one says, I love you enough to find out what it feels like to be humble and low. And that's his mission. That's a weird mission for a God, isn't it? Like I said, find me a God who takes that as a goal in life. Typically, it's like, hey, you lowly ones, bow down and bring me some offerings. But this God says, let me serve you. Right? Because you're far from me, we are told. You were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But you, estranged one, you, evil deed person, he's come to reconcile you. To take you who were far away and bring you near. And to do it, he is willing to experience peril. Like here he is, helpless baby, and there are literally people in the next chapter of Matthew who are trying to kill him with a sword. The whole story is too weird to not be true. And he does this because he takes you. There's this beautiful mystery in the person of Christ. He's got a body, he's human. But in him the fullness of God dwells, in that body. With his flesh, he reconciles us. The church has struggled with this. I struggle with this. How do we talk about that? God and human in one person. It's mysterious. And I've kind of gotten to the place in my life where I don't feel like I have to have a good answer for it necessarily. <laughs> I'm just really grateful. Really, really grateful. And when I hear texts like this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. When I hear texts like this, when I hear about this counterintuitive beauty, like I've sort of just gotten to the point in life where I want to put the theologian on the shelf and weep. With gratitude. That this one, who could 
will me out of existence with a fleeting thought. Instead, takes up residence in a feeding trough because he loves me. That's his mission. That's the meaning of Christmas. And friends, we get so easily distracted, don't we? We get so easily distracted. All the baubles that come with this month. And I wonder if the best thing for the church in America wouldn't be to sort of just sort of put the baubles on the shelf and gather and spend a lot of time giving thanks to God and singing and praying texts like this and rediscover Christmas, which is fundamentally about the supremacy of Christ. who shows up to offer himself for us and for our salvation. When we talk about the salvation that he offers us, that he has purchased for us, that he gives us, that we've confirmed here, Scripture is explicit again and again and again that he means way more than conversion. Like he doesn't mean come down front and say the prayer and answer the preacher's questions and then go back and act like nothing has happened. Why did he come? To present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Now it's not often that we go around sort of pointing out Holy, blameless irreproachability. Typically, I think most of us are like, there's some reproach, and there's some reproach, and there's some blameworthiness. Like, that's, we easily slide into that mode, don't we? And the cosmic Jesus, the supreme Jesus, has every right to look upon me that way with my reproach and my blameworthiness and my unholiness. But instead of looking upon my reproach and my blameworthiness and my unholiness, the cosmic supreme Jesus takes up residence in a manger because His primary value is to make me holy. I'm not sure I get that. I've been thinking about it seriously for about 20 years, and I'm pretty sure I don't understand it. Like his values, the system that he's created, the mission that he is on, boggles my mind. He can have whatever he wants, he doesn't even have to snap his fingers to have. Every created thing that exists serve him. And yet, in his kindness, in a manger, 
so that we, who are so quick to point out reproach, can become irreproachable. That's his mission. And it's beautiful. It's so beautiful, it has to be true. And when I run into that kind of beauty, I'm reminded, <laughs> I'm reminded of what one philosopher theologian said. He said, there's no argument against you. need to defend the Christian faith in that way. For the one who reigns in heaven who has every right to dispense with me. Humiliates himself. To recover. For the church, broadly speaking, to rediscover that Christmas. And I wonder if we do, what changes? Like, what changes on Sunday morning if we re rediscovered that Christmas? What changes on Monday morning if we rediscover that meaning of Christmas? The mission of God. What changes? What do my priorities look like? What do our gatherings look like? How do we relate to the world? Like, what does it look like to rediscover that? The cosmically supreme Christ took up residence in a baby's body and was laid in a manger to recover us and make us whole. To set us free from our demons and our addictions and our shame and our guilt and, and the habits that reproduce all of that stuff every day. St. Athanasius lived in the 4th century. He wrote one of the most popular books in the history of the church on the Incarnation. It's a spectacular little book. I read it every year, every other year or so. Short. He said this, He, Jesus, has been manifest in a human body for this reason only out of the love and goodness of His Father for the salvation of us men, humankind. I think the question for us is simple. Do we want to rediscover Christmas like that? Do we want that Jesus to take hold of us? 
make us His in every way. And if we do, brothers and sisters, that beauty, that joy, He will make us participants. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.